we are in this uh, sermon series called Love Finds a Way, and we're in our second Sunday of Advent. I can't even believe Christmas is just around the corner, and it's just so wonderful, so exciting. And uh, so what we're doing for this sermon series, Love Finds a Way, is that each week we're going to look at an Old Testament story and then a New Testament story that might have a similar theme or might have a similar tone to it or kind of connect to it a little bit because I love the Old Testament. I love the stories in there and I'm excited for us just to to understand it a little bit deeper uh, this morning. So we're going to talk about joy and I love joy. I love it. I love to smile. I love joy in my life. And I want to live in joy and exude joy. And I want the joy of the Lord in me. Like, I want to perspire joy. I want to, like, sweat joy. I just want to, like, breathe joy in and breathe joy out. Like, I just want my life to be filled with joy. And I'm hoping that you do as well. And you know what? In these days, it is difficult some days I'm going to confess to have joy. It's pretty tough. Just a couple days ago, we received some new restrictions from Northern Health, and I'm telling you, the first words that came to my mouth were not joy. They were not joy. I was frustrated. And what I was doing is I was looking at the circumstance and letting that determine my joy or lack of joy and not looking at the one who holds it all together. And so we're going to talk some more about that today because uh, I think we could all admit that over the years or maybe over this last week, we've had those moments where we have let our circumstances dictate our mood and determine if we're going to walk in joy or not. And so I also just wanted to let you know that I have a free resource that I've written for you to help you to break through some of these strongholds and ideas that we're going to get to later in the message. And you can click on that free resource called Choosing Joy. Well, we're going to start with the Old Testament. And I love this because we're going to start with how much God loves us. From the very beginning of creation, God has wanted to be with us, to dwell with us. And he created you and I for his companionship. He wants to be with us. And it's such a mind-blowing idea that the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, wants to dwell in our midst. He wants relationship with you. And, and I don't know about for you, but it just like blows my mind. And as we go through the scripture, I just, I was like mind blown over and over, and I hope that you will be too. So I just hope that you will open your heart to receive the word of God today. You see, God, this eternal, infinite, transcendent God is not restricted by the existence of time or space or location anywhere in the universe. He is everywhere within all um, constraints of time. He is everywhere all at the same time. And he dwells above and beyond yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And here's the incredible thing. God bound himself to us, to his people. This God who's not bound by anything, 
that has no restriction, that is timeless. There's no address for God. You can't find, you know, a P.O. box, right? God does not have an address. He is limitless, and yet he binds himself to this box. Why? Because he wants us as humans to have relationship and connection to him, and he knows that we are limited, right? We as humans are limited. So he is not limited. He is limitless. And yet he says, I'm going to take my presence and I'm going to let it dwell among you. And it says in Exodus 25, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Isn't that beautiful? He wants to dwell in our midst. And so what he does is in the Old Testament, and you can start reading in Exodus, and it's just so fascinating. He wants this relationship with people. And so he instructs Moses on how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the portable sanctuary, okay? So it was a tent that the, the people could fold up and they could carry with them as they were wandering and going through the uh, wilderness. And so God wants to tabernacle with them. He gives some very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, how big it should be, what size it should be, the materials that it should be, because he wants to dwell. He wants to habitate with them. And that's literally what the word tabernacle means. It means to dwell. And so it was also called the tent of meeting. So if you're reading in the Old Testament and you see tent of meeting, it's the tabernacle. It means the same thing. And so as the people were moving, God wanted to move with them. And so this was the portable sanctuary where God's presence dwelt within a specific place. And I just love how he designed this. There's these different parts and pieces to the tabernacle, but the, the showcase, the centerpiece, is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubim, two angels, and their wings are up and over this rectangle box that's the Ark of the Covenant, and they point in, and right here in the center is where the presence of God hovers and lives. And this place between the angel wings is called the Shekinah Glory, and this is where the presence of God is, in this spot on the Ark of the Covenant. And you know, God never complained about this uh, portable moving sanctuary. I think God just, he just wants to be with people, right? He just wants to be with the humanity that he created. And he was fine with this portable sanctuary. But David, King David, who comes along years after Moses, decides, no, 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 no. God is too precious. God is too magnificent. I want to honor him. And so David decides that, that they need to build a permanent temple, not a movable structure, but a permanent structure. And so over the next thousand years, there's three different temples that are built uh, as, a, as a home, as a place for the presence of God. And the first one is called Solomon's Temple, and it began in about 960 B.C. Now, David was very, very passionate about building this temple. And so God allowed David to collect the building materials. And you can find this story in 1 Chronicles 2. Well, I'm uh, 2 to 29, and I'm going to go to chapter 22, verse 5. David said, My son Solomon is still young and inexperienced, 
And since the temple to be built for the Lord must be a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin preparing, making preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. There were cedar logs, there was gold, there was silver, there were goldsmiths and silversmiths and craftsmen and workers and gifts, and it was all gathered by David, and he even had detailed instructions of what this permanent temple, this location, was to look like. But he was not the man to build the temple. His son Solomon was next, and God gave Solomon the job of building this temple. And so that's why it's called Solomon's Temple. And so in 2 Chronicles, you can actually see that once the temple is done, they dedicated it and they brought the Ark of the Covenant from Zion into the temple. So the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle, the portable sanctuary, and now it's been moved to the permanent temple. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And it says in 2 Chronicles 5.2, when all the elders of Israel arrived, just imagine this. The Levites picked up the ark. The priests and Levites brought the ark along with the special tent and all the sacred items that had been in it. There before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. This is how they worshiped God. This is how they atoned for their sins, was to make a sacrifice of a sheep, a goat, or a cattle. Then the priests carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into their inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the Ark, forming a canopy over the Ark and its carrying poles. Where did the Ark of the Covenant rest? Where did it go? To the temple. And the temple was then deemed the most holy place. Not because it was elaborate or a magnificent structure. It was holy because it's where God dwelt. That's what made the temple holy, is that God dwelt there in the Ark of the Covenant. God made it holy. And if God left the temple, it wasn't holy anymore, right? Isn't that just incredible? That just gets me so hyped up that where the presence of God is, there is holiness. Like, if you were here in this room, I would be saying, say amen, say amen, say amen. So you're at home, say amen, say amen, say amen. Where the presence of God is, there is holiness, right? It doesn't matter the building, the address, the location, the space. doesn't matter if it's a portable tabernacle or a permanent temple. It's the presence of God that makes it, makes it holy. And this temple, Solomon's temple, was then later on destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies in about 586 BC. And uh, the Babylonians basically destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took the Israelite people, carted them off into um, slavery, and, and off they went. And Bible scholars think that the Ark of the Covenant was also destroyed at this point. But it's still something of a mystery. 
If you've ever watched Indiana Jones, they still think it's around somewhere. But we don't know that. Scholars don't know that for sure. All right, so that was our first temple, Solomon's temple. Our second one is known as Zerubbabel's temple. And so the Israelites have been carted off Jerusalem, and the temple has been annihilated. And years later, there's some remnant of people that decide that they're, like, they're allowed to come back into Jerusalem. And so they rebuild the temple, and it's under Zerubbabel and he was the grandson of King Jehoiachin. And so they complete this temple. It's not elaborate or super fancy, but it's a temple and a place to go and to worship, worship God. And then uh, it lasted about 500 years, and then it was now dismantled by King Herod. And if you remember, we talked about him last week. And he dismantled the temple because he wanted to build a bigger, more impressive temple, not to give glory to God, but to find favor with the Jewish people. And so this third temple we know as Herod's temple, and it began in about 20 BC. Okay, so I just want to make a note about the second and the third temple. What was missing out of that temple? What was missing? The Ark of the Covenant. Because we know after the destruction of the first temple that the Ark of the Covenant went missing or was destroyed, right? So the second and third temple, there were feasts, there were celebrations, there were sacrifices that were given, right? There were prayers that were offered in this temple, but the presence of the Lord did not rest in these two temples. Because where did God dwell? He dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant, in that place between the cherubim wings. That was God's holy of holies, that was his holy place. And so he did not have his presence in the second or third temple. And you might be thinking, well, why, why does this really matter? Why does it matter that God's presence wasn't there? Well, just wait for it. I'm telling you, it's so good. This is so good. Okay, so maybe, maybe I'm simplifying it, but that's what I'm reading. And in Ezra 6, it talks about dedicating the second temple, but there's no, mar no mention of the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence, all right? So we got to notice this. So now we're in the days of King Herod, right? He's built this elaborate temple again, and it's about 4 or 6 BC, and our precious and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, has been born in Bethlehem, right? Remember, that's only 10 kilometers away from Jerusalem, and we know that love finds a way. Love finds a way. God finds a way for his redemptive story to keep moving through the mess of humanity. And that's where we get to Luke 2, verse 21. And I hope you're hanging on for the ride because this is the best part. Okay, verse 21. On the day of the baby's circumcision ceremony, eight days after his birth, his parents gave him the name Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, I just love that name. The name prophesied by the angel before he was born. Forty days after the birth of her son, Mary's time of purification had completed. So she came to the temple with a sacrifice according to the law of Moses. Now, if you haven't read the Passion Translation yet, I just, I love this translation because of the footnotes. They include so much incredible meat. And I want to read you the footnote for this scripture from the Passion. It says, this comes from Leviticus 12, 1 to 7. When a son was born, 
the mother went through a 40-day period of purification, and then she was to offer a sacrifice to complete the process. Okay, back to our scripture. So Mary and Joseph took baby Jesus to Jerusalem to be dedicated before the Lord. Again, here's a little footnote out of the Passion. The Ark of the Covenant, signifying the presence of God, had been what? Well, we just learned it had been absent since 586 BC when the Babylonians, <coughs> sorry, getting so excited, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Okay, so the Ark of the Covenant's gone. It's destroyed. We don't know where it is. But that was the presence of God, and it's gone out of the temple. Herod's temple had no Ark of, Coven of the Covenant until Jesus came into the temple that day. God returned to the temple when Mary carried her baby into its courts. Mike, drop! Mike, drop! When Mary carried her baby back into the courts, the presence of God had come back into the temple because the presence of God was Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. It says to look at Malachi 3, verses 1-2. And let's just read this. It's so exciting. I know. I'm just like, I can barely hold it together. Look, it says, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. <laughs> That's Jesus. He just came in the temple with Mary. Ah! The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Not me. Oh, who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And so Malachi is speaking prophetically of these things that happened later on. That the presence of God was missing from the temple for hundreds of years. And Mary walks in with her baby and boom, presence of God has returned. Continuing on in our scripture in Luke 2, it says, For it is stated in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be set apart for God and is required to offer a pre, pre, sorry, prescribed sacrifice, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, this just is like mind-blowing because the cost of purification that Mary paid for herself and baby Jesus is two turtle doves or pigeons. That is so minimal. I mean, this was a poor family at the time, and this is all that they had to give for the sacrifice. But she pays this sacrifice for the purification of herself and her baby. It's a foreshadowing of the cost that Jesus paid as a final pure sacrifice, offering himself for all of humanity's sin. This is the pure joy of the Lord. This is the joy of the Lord, that he would love us this much, that he would send his son as the pure sacrifice for your mistakes and my mistakes, past, present, and future. The passion footnote for that scripture says, 
Because Joseph and Mary were rather poor, not yet receiving the gifts brought by the wise men, they offered a pair of doves or pigeons instead of a lamb. Mary offered a sin offering, showing her need of a savior. She knew she needed a savior. She knew that a debt had to be paid. An offering had to be made. A sacrifice had to be made, and she did it. And one day, Jesus would be sacrificed and offered as her true lamb. Isn't that just mind-blowing to try and fathom the greatness of God, that he would do such a thing as that? Why? Because he wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with me. He wants to dwell with you. Please do not take that lightly. So significant. He wants to dwell. He wants to tabernacle. He wants to be in your midst. And he gave his son. He's confined himself to humanity in order to bring these two things together. Jesus abides in us. And we abide in him, it says in John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is joy. And I am just, I'm wrecked by the thought that this is what God has done for me. This is magnificent news. This is the good news. This is the gospel that should be so uncontainable that we should never be ashamed to tell anybody about our Savior and what he has done for us and that he wants to dwell with us. So you might be thinking, where is God's final dwelling place then well let's look to revelation 21 22 it says i saw no temple and so this is john and he's he's seeing a, a picture of heaven i saw no temple in the city not a permanent one not a, a a transportable one not a temporary one there's no temple in the city for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the lamb the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Please say amen. Please say amen. Amen, amen, amen. The Lord God Almighty is our place of worship. He in himself. And there's nothing between us and between him. And he continues on to say in Ephesians 2, verses 19, that you and I, we're not foreigners. We're not guests. But we are children of the city of the Holy Ones with all the rights as family members of the household of God. You were rising like the perfectly fitted stones of the temple, so that temple that was so purposefully plotted and mapped and designed and, and created, you too fit perfectly in the stones of the temple. And who's the temple? It's God. And you fit perfectly with him. And your lives have been built up together upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. And best of all, you are connected to the head cornerstone and that was like the top stone that held everything together and you are connected through the holy spirit to the head cornerstone of the building the anointed one jesus christ himself 
And this entire building is under construction. And I love this because I want you to say, I'm under construction. <laughs> I'm under construction. This entire building is under construction and is continually growing under his supervision until it rises up completed as the holy temple of the Lord God himself. This means that God is transforming each one of you into the holy of holies, his dwelling place through the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Again, mic drop. Like, this is just so incredible. You know, if you came to church this morning and you were feeling like your well was empty, right? That your well was dry, that your salvation was barren, that the news of the world and the pandemic and the flooding and the lower mainland and the mudslides and the mess and the isolation and the rules was drying you up and you felt like a shriveled old raisin, I hope that this good news saturates you. Let it saturate you. Let it saturate you. This is the goodness of our God. Not only is he the temple, is he the one to worship, but he brings you in. He brings you into his family and he gives you the Holy Spirit. Choosing joy is so difficult in these times, but this is why we go back and we read these stories and we connect these dots because they help us to remember that we don't have our eyes on our circumstances, we have our eyes on the King. There is always hope in Him. Our, our viewpoint changes when we're looking at it from a God perspective because he wants to dwell in you. He wants to empower you with his Holy Spirit. And he, Jesus just like comes into the scene. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we're never without the presence of God again. When we have the, when we have the Holy Spirit, we're never without the presence of God again. Right? And these dry places, they can affect us spiritually, right? Because the enemy is trying to close the door between us and God. The enemy is trying to close the door between us and the word because the word is alive and life-giving. And man, I read these scriptures, I connect these dots, and I cannot be the same. I am changed because of this good news. But you see, what we've done so often is that we've allowed joy to be conditional. We've allowed joy to be so conditional that it doesn't last past a Sunday morning service. We've allowed joy to be so conditional that if somebody is having a bad day, it affects the rest of us. Oh, if the worship team are off, oh, well, they've ruined my worship today. It is absolutely, I cannot have a joyful day now because the worship team was a little bit off, right? We've allowed our circumstances to dictate our joy. Oh, the message today, yeah, yeah, it wasn't very good. I didn't get a thing out of it. So, yeah, I'm just going to go and live my crummy old rotten life. We allow our circumstances to determine our joy. And woe is us. No, no, no. So church, I'm going to give you five ways that you can stop sabotaging your own joy. And this is a little bit of a mom talk, okay? I know, I'm a mom, so I'm going to mom on you a little bit. It's a bit of a mom talk. But these are five ways that you can stop sabotaging your own joy. And the first one is to stop looking to other people for your happiness. Come on, don't we all do this, right? 
we all look like, dang, we're all looking around to other people to feed us so that that will determine if we have joy or not. Right? It's not about the solid relationship that I have built on the rock, Jesus Christ. No, no, no. It's about the people that are around me that determine if I have happiness and if I have joy. Well, here's some good news for you. If you want joy, you go to the one who always has joy. God never runs out of joy. He's always joyful. God's actually never in a bad mood. He doesn't change. It, his joy doesn't lessen or, or, or get greater depending on the circumstances. It's constant and dependable and it's faithful. And that is the joy of the Lord. And when we rest in his arms, when we soak in his presence, when we get our eyes focused on him and not our circumstances or the people around us, we don't depend on them for our happiness. And then our joy is connected to the joy of the Lord. So it doesn't matter if I'm folding laundry, if I'm cleaning the toilet, if I'm brushing my teeth, I'm driving, I'm working, or I'm at home, where's my joy come from? You see, and we stay stuck, and we let dry places suck the life out of us and suck out our joy because our happiness is based on the people around us. A church, we've got to do this different. We need to connect to the author of joy. The second tip I want to give you is to stop listening to the lies about your past. You know, I talked about this a little bit last week, that we can challenge and change our own story. You actually write the script. You get to write the script for your story, and you can change the conversation you can change the perspective, and you can change the dialogue. And if you are avoiding your past because you think that you are the only one with issues, newsflash, every single one of us has issues. Every single one of us. And you know what? The people that you like to be around are the ones who have dealt with their issues, right? We like to be around people that are healthy and not dramatic and messy. Those people who haven't dealt with their issues, you know, we, we sometimes avoid them because we want to be around people who have stopped listening to the lies of their past and have dealt with it. They're not stuck. They've moved in forgiveness, right? You can change your story. You can challenge the lies. And you can say, Jesus, where were you in that situation? Jesus, where were you in my past? Where are you in my present? And where will you be in my future? Because he is steady and true and his joy is always dependable. The third tip I have is stop waiting till you get to the goal before you find joy. How many people do you know that are just no fun? And I know this is coming from me, and I like to have a lot of fun. Okay, I get it. But there are just those people that are no fun, no fun, no fun, right? They're like, I got to work for my goal. I got to get to my goal, and I can't get distracted. I got to go to the goal, go to my class, be the best at my job, get, keep my eyes on the goal, right? And I'm not saying goals are bad because, man, they're fantastic. We need to have goals. But what I'm saying is don't wait until you get to the very end of your goal before you celebrate. Do some celebrating along the way. Who says you can't celebrate now? You can have a party now and celebrate your small accomplishments. 
Party now and celebrate the small steps forward. If you've dealt with your past and you've forgiven, celebrate that, man. Celebrate that. Get yourself a cupcake. Put a candle on it. Blow it out and be like, dang, I just took a step forward. I'm choosing joy in my life. We need to have some fun. I think, you know, there was one night uh, with our staff meeting, and I just felt like there was so much pressure. It was like a pressure cooker. And I felt like I was just like, you know, I was just like not having fun. And there was no joy. And it was just pressure, pressure. And so you know what I did? I went down to the youth room and I pulled out the Nerf guns and the Nerf bullets. And our 20 staff ran around the upstairs of the church and we shot each other with Nerf guns. And I'm telling you, it was therapeutic. It was joyful to be shooting the staff. And I, I don't mean that literally. But it was just so fun to run around and to have some joy and some fun with one another. So don't wait till you get to the goal. Have some joy along the way. The fourth thing, and this is a big one. Oh, and this one I just, I hear all the time. <sighs> Stop seeing yourself as undeserving, invaluable, or ordinary. This is my tip. This is my tip, church. I love you. I love you. And I talk with you. I talk with a lot of you. And I hear you saying that you are undeserving, invaluable, or ordinary. And I am telling you, that is a lie. You are fantastic. You are amazing. And you need to kill the idea that you are undeserving. You need to kill the idea that you do not deserve to be healed. Kill the idea that you, that you don't deserve to move past your past. Yes, you do. And you need to schedule some time for self-care. I think what's happened in the midst of a pandemic is that we spent a lot of time at home or in isolation, but has it been a time of self-care? Has it been a rejuvenating time? Has it been a life-giving time? Has it poured into us? And so I am just encouraging you to have time for self-care. Now, last year in the spring, I had a friend who kept encouraging me to do something for myself that was just for me, something um, of self-care. And um, I, I really love pretty things. You guys know that. I love sparkly things. I love fashion. And I just love pretty things. And so she bought me a gift certificate to go and get my nails done. And um, I kind of just, I honestly, I felt undeserving. I just, I didn't think I was worthy to spend the money to go and get my nails done. And I kind of thought like a million and a half times, you know, there's starving children out there. Who am I to go and to get my nails done? Well, here's the thing. I do my absolute best to live a life of generosity. I am generous with my time and my possessions, my home, my money, my love, my friendship. And I see people around me as so valuable and I want to be so generous. I want to lavish love and friendship and time with the people that are around me. I want to be generous with them because I value them because they're so valuable to me. So then shouldn't I also see myself as deserving and as valuable? You see, if I don't take time to care for me, the well runs dry 
and then I'm no good to anybody, right? Then I'm just a grump. I have got to take care of me in order to have a joyful life. And so I'm not saying live outside of your means or um, maybe you need to find a friend like I had that buys me gift certificates to get my nails done. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And I'm not saying um, that it needs to be something extravagant or expensive. Man, self-care is going for a walk and just marveling at the beauty of nature, right? Self-care is making yourself a really good meal. Self-care is taking time with a friend. Self-care is getting a massage or a pedicure or getting your nails done. But you deserve to be pampered and treasured. You deserve to take care of yourself. And I think some of you don't believe it. And I want you to say with me, I am deserving. Okay, let's do it. I am deserving. Yeah, I'm deserving. Remember, I'm one of those stones. I'm one of those, those pieces that are a part of the temple. I'm a, I'm a part of a heavenly inheritance. Yeah, I am deserving. The next one is to kill the idea that you are invaluable. You know, we've talked about our dealing with our past, and I think so often we think that we're not valuable enough to be healthy, right? But you are. You are valuable. And when you see yourself as valuable and as worthy to find healing, the people around you are going to start to see a difference, and they too are going to see that you are valuable, and you're going to start getting treated differently. If you're the tornado drama queen that rushes in and makes a mess everywhere you go because you're not dealing with your stuff, people are not going to find you valuable. But when, when we deal with our stuff, when we forgive, when we move through our past, when we start to care about ourselves and believe that we are valuable, the people around us are going to believe there's something different. That person is valuable. And so I want you to say with me, I am valuable. I am valuable. I know you don't believe it, but I'm believing that you're going to just keep saying that to yourself. I am valuable. I am deserving. And the last one is that we need to kill the idea that you are ordinary. You are not ordinary. You are extraordinary. And it doesn't mean you have to wear sparkles or have colored hair. You are extraordinary. And why? Because you have been adopted by the king of heaven and you are kingdom property. And that makes you extraordinary. If Jesus is extraordinary and the Holy Spirit, who is extraordinary, lives inside of you, then by adoption, you're what? Extraordinary. You are extraordinary. And I just say, take your rightful place beside Jesus. It's not a place of arrogance. It's a place of humbleness, humility, and welcoming because you are extraordinary. You see, nothing just happens. You have to say yes, you have to believe it, and you have to step into it. I want you to say, I am extraordinary. I am extraordinary. The fifth and last one is to stop thinking it's okay to live individualistically. I know. I know it's hard when we are being told, you know, to stay at home. But priority should be relationship. Relationships matter. A friend said to me not too long ago, after the floods in Abbotsford and the mudslides in the province, people were stranded in a mess. And she said to me, there is 
has never been a time like now where relationships count. It is true. We need deep relationships. Relationships can be the water to our dry souls. Relationship with God, relationship with people, with family and friends. There's no fruit without relationships. So think about that, right? If we have no relationship with God, there's no fruit. If we have no relationship with our family, there's no fruit. If we have no relationship with our friends, there's no fruit. We need relationships. And if you're like, I got no time for relationships, I'm just working, well then I would say stop living a life of imbalance, right? We need to make time and make relationships a priority. Nothing just happens. Joy won't choose you. You must choose joy. I want to say it again. Nothing just happens. Joy won't choose you. Remember, the enemy is trying to put a door and a wall between you and God, between you and the word, between you and joy. Joy won't choose you. Joy doesn't have a choice. It doesn't get to choose. But you can choose joy. You can choose joy, the joy of the Lord. And wherever you are watching with us, I want you to do something with me. I'm going to get you to stand up in your seat, okay? And so I want you to stand up. So let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's just stand up, all right? And I want you to imagine, I want you to kind of look back, and I want you to imagine the seat that you were just sitting in is a seat of sabotage. The chair that you were just sitting in was a chair of complaining, the couch you were just sitting in was a couch of complacency. The ditch you were just stuck in was a ditch of destruction. The enemy does not care who you are. He is out to destroy you and kill your joy. And I want you to stay standing. Are you really going to allow the devil to come into your home, into your heart, and steal from you? Now, if I was to come into your home and, and steal your TV, would you let me? If I was going to come into your home and steal your phone or your iPad or your bed, would you let me? No, you would not. So why are you letting the enemy come into your home and steal your joy? Why are you letting the enemy come into your heart, into your mind and into your soul and steal your joy? No, no, no. So what I want you to do is I, we're just like, by moving... It's like an action. It's like saying, you know what? No, no more. I will not let the enemy steal my joy because I am going to get rooted and planted deep down so that it's not my circumstances. It's the one who I'm going to keep my eyes on, the one who is the temple, the one who dwells with me and dwells with you. So let's move seats. I want you just to switch seats. Pick a different seat. Remember, nothing just happens. We have to step into it. We have to move into things for them to happen. We have to move our spot. So let's trade our self-sabotage for joy. And I've got a question for you that I'm hoping you're gathered with some people and you'll ask each other, maybe over coffee or over lunch. What can you do to actively choose positives in your life instead of waiting for the good things to happen? How can you choose joy?